0: So unlike other major religions, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, any other major religion, Christianity is not primarily concerned with our actions. Christianity is primarily concerned with our motives, with our heart. Like if there's a word that Jesus would use to say that he's primarily concerned with one thing, it's love and love. Love is a tricky thing. So, uh, Sue and I met my sophomore year of college, and we kind of hung out in the same groups and got to know her a little bit over the time, but didn't think much of it. But the more we hung out, I started hearing rumors through the grapevine, and then soon I found out, it was confirmed, true, that Sue actually wanted to be a lot more than friends. And uh, it just, it was one of those things where she, Sue's a great girl, great girl nice personality. I mean, the whole thing. But uh, but the fact of the matter, is, for me, from my side, there was just nothing there. She was a nice girl, and that was it. And so it just got kind of awkward, so I chose to do what any respectable man would do, completely ignore the situation. And then something happened. Uh, one day, we were out with our usual group, and She's looking extra stressed And she comes up to me And we just start chatting Of course I pretend like I don't know anything About the rest of that going on And she says Paul like Life is just getting so complex right now And I'm like man I'm sorry to hear this Like what's, what's going on and she said you see um, I'm turning 21 And my family they're kind of wealthy And I'm like So she's like well I have a trust fund And what happens when I turn 21, I've got these lawyers and all these attorneys, they're contacting me already because I'm going to be responsible for my $10 million trust fund. (laughs) To which I said nothing because I could no longer hear any words she was saying. All I could do was fantasize what it would be like to marry into $10 million. $10 million. Like, do you know what that's like? I could jet set around the globe, and I was already in Vail and Soho. and Like, I was driving an Aston Martin right at that moment. There are few problems in life that you cannot solve with $10 million. So, seriously, the first thought I have is, for $10 million, could I learn to love this girl? <laughs> Followed briefly, after just a little hesitation, by, I am such a prostitute. It's hard to love when millions of dollars are involved. Now, here's my question. If for $10 million I would be tempted to vow my love to a woman, what would happen if I met a person who not only had wealth but could actually solve all the problems in my life? What if I met a person who could literally do anything for me? They could fix my kids, give me my dream job. They could destroy my enemies. They could heal me. They could raise the dead. The question is, could I love such a person? Or would all the other stuff that I wanted from them get in the way? Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, the fact of the matter is that when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene 2,000 years ago and 6,000 miles away from here, When he shows up to these Galilean peasants and says, Here I am. That's exactly what they see. They see a man who can do anything for them. He can literally fix all of their problems. He's got the ultimate trust fund here. He can raise the dead. He can heal me. He can fix my kids. He can fix my life. He can heal our world. He can make me rich. He can give me my dream job. He can do anything. So, do you want to follow Jesus? Yes, I want all that stuff. But do you love Jesus? Of course, I love all that stuff. But do you love Jesus? You see... Loving Jesus and loving the stuff he can do for you, that's something different. That's a hard question. That's a question about motives. That's a question that you can probably only answer for yourselves and probably only under the right circumstances. But don't be mistaken, when you read through the scriptures, that's a question about which Jesus is very concerned that you address. In fact, when we come to the gospel of Mark, which we're going to be in today, When we come to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to find that the Gospel of Mark seems to be entirely formed around this very question. Do you love Jesus? Do you really want to follow him as Messiah? Or do you just love the stuff that he can do for you? If you have a Bible today, I would encourage you to open it because we're going to be all over. And I kind of want you to see the scope of this. We're not going to cover a passage in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to cover the Gospel of Mark today. All right, strap on your seatbelts. Gospel Mark starts like this The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, verse 1. This is a book about Jesus the Messiah, the King, the true King, God's King over his kingdom, and this is the good news, the Gospel. This is the news that's supposed to be proclaimed all around the world. So how is Jesus going to go about spreading this good news? We see in chapter 1, verse 44, that what Jesus does is he comes out, says, I'm the Messiah, here I am, here's a leper. And the leper comes to him, and what does he do? He touches him, heals him, and now he says, see that you don't tell anyone about this. Okay, so so chapter 3, there's these men, demon-possessed men, and as soon as Jesus comes into their presence, they start screaming. Chapter 3, verse 11, that says they cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. Chapter 5, one of my favorite stories, there's a little girl who, who dies... And my daughter Jillian actually loves this story because we enact it at her bedside sometime. So she's in bed. She's dead, the little girl. And Jesus reaches down, touches her on the arm and says, little girl, wake up. Little girl, wake up. And she does. And then Jesus turns around to everyone in the room and says this. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Okay, Mark chapter 7. He meets a deaf man. He opens his ears. This man who is deaf can now hear. What does he say to them? He commanded them not to tell anyone. Mark chapter 8. Jesus finds a man born blind, or a man who's blind, and he goes through this extravagant process to bring him through a process. So I preached on this a few weeks ago. This process where he, he gradually receives his sight. And after he does this miraculous deed, shows the disciples, I am the Messiah. Open your eyes. I can give sight to the blind spiritually and physically. And then he says this to the man, don't even go into the village. I don't want you to tell anyone about this. Okay, do you follow this? We've just been through th- eight chapters, the first half, more than half of the Gospel of Mark, and two things are crystal clear here. Jesus is the Messiah. And what does that mean? It means he has power over everything. He can heal the sick. He can open the ears to the deaf. He can give sight to the blind. He can, he can speak to the forces of nature, the forces of evil. They worship him. They, they fear. and They cower in fear before him. He is the Messiah. That's perfectly clear. But there's a second thing that's perfectly clear. He doesn't want anyone to know about this. And he does not want anyone to follow him for these reasons. Kind of weird. So what about this good news you came, right? The, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. The good news. Didn't you come? You're the Messiah. That's the good news for every man, woman, and child across the nations. We're supposed to hear this good news. Jesus, what are we going to do with this? Well, the secret's out at this point. As you read through the gospel, you'll find that this news about Jesus the Messiah has already started spreading. It's already made it all the way to the palace. And this guy named Herod Antipas... He's asking questions now. And he asked all the guys in his court, so who, who is this guy? Some are saying, well, I think he's Elijah. I think he's a prophet of old. But Herod, he's convinced, no, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead to haunt me. And so, Jesus hears about all these rumors. He knows that the word's out on him. And what is he going to do next is he pulls the disciples aside, he gets them alone, and he says to them, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman of the apostles, the bold one, he stands up. I I know the answer to this one. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, the the word Messiah, uh, it could be translated Messiah or Christ in your text, because both are the same. One's a Hebrew word, one's Greek. Messiah, Mashiach, Christ, Christos. Those mean the exact same thing. They literally mean anointed one. They just mean that the anointed king of Israel. That's what it's a reference to. If you look in first century Palestine, Christ or Messiah was not a name. It's a title like president or his excellency or your honor. That this is the title that that Jesus deserves. He's the title of Messiah. That you are the rightful king over Israel. And Peter, at this point, his answer is exactly right. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the rightful king of the kingdom. So what's Jesus going to do? Finally, they get it. What do you think he's going to do? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What's going on? Jesus came to spread the good news that he's come to the world to save everyone, right? To bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. We, we, even to this day, we want his name to be spread over all the nations. And yet it's a secret. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Every time someone speaks, every time someone recognizes him, he says, Don't tell. Don't tell. Don't tell. Every time a crowd starts for Him, he runs away. In order to appreciate this, we need to back up a little and try and get out of our mindset of what we know about Jesus and stop thinking of Christ as a curse word. And we need to think about what it meant to an ancient Palestinian peasant that Jesus is the Messiah. What would they hear if they heard Jesus is the Messiah? Now, I know this is guesswork. But we don't have to guess too much. I mean, there were some different, different theories about who the Messiah would be and what he would do. But if you look through those, all of those theories, the fact of the matter is, is there's, there's some general consensus about the job description of a first century Messiah. And that's what I want to cover here real quick. There, there's going to be four things that we're going to see that a first century Messiah, any good Messiah, is going to do. And the first and foremost is that he's going to overthrow Rome. See, the Jews, they hated the Romans. Like, the Roman rule was an insult. It was an affront. They were the people of God. God had promised to Abraham this land. They had promised to David that he would have a son, a king, a Davidic king would rule over this land for eternity. And every time they saw a Roman soldier, every time they paid a Roman tax, they were reminded that the promises were not yet fulfilled. And it just grated, grated. Rome represented everything wrong with the picture. But they knew when Messiah comes, that would come to an end. So when the Messiah comes, he's obviously going to overthrow Rome, right? So at this point in history, you'll find that if you look a couple uh, decades before Jesus, a couple decades after, you look in that time period, you find if you wanted to become a Messiah, basically the qualifying step was that you had to take on Rome. Now, let's be clear. During that time, anyone, anyone could declare themselves to be the Messiah, right? It's easy to say, hey, I'm the Messiah. But how do you prove it? Well, you prove it by forming an army and trying to take over Rome. And that's exactly what happened. We, we find in the years, let me read through a few of these names. Just before Christ, there's a name. Uh, Thudius gathered 400 disciples, declared himself Messiah. After that, a guy named the Egyptian. He raised an army in the desert. After that, a shepherd named Athrongs. After that, a guy named the Samaritan. After that, a Galilean bandit chief named Hezekiah. Spoke about him a few weeks ago. Simon of Perea, Judas the Galilean. That guy was awesome. Judas's grandson, Menahem. Simon of Gior, Simon son of Kokba. I mean, it's quite a list as you go through. Name after name, all these people trying out for the position. I would like to be the Messiah. If you read through the history, you discover that each and every one of them, at some point, someone said, that guy's the Messiah. But when they tried the first step. Here's the deal. When, if you don't meet the qualification of being Messiah, the consolation prize is that you get crucified. And every one of those men that I just listed claimed to be Messiah, and then Rome executed them brutally. Most of them were crucified. Remember Judas, the Galilean, when he was crucified, it wasn't just him, it was 2,000 Galileans with him. So, if you are God's Messiah, the first step is you're going to defeat the Romans, and after that, it actually gets a lot easier. Step number two is you defeat the Romans, and then it all just comes down, right? Then you're going to make us really rich. Alright? So the picture that they had is, if you read through Amos and Isaiah, what's the Messiah going to do? Supernatural blessings. Which, what can be more supernatural blessings, say, more of a supernatural blessing than an Aston Martin in your driveway? Right? And then after that, you're going to make us powerful. The Jews were going to be more powerful than any other people in the world. Those closest to the Messiah were going to be given cabinet seats, thrones right beside him. And then the last thing is you are going to make us happy. That's right. The Messiah, our people are going to all come back together like never before. We're going to be one big happy family. So if you're a Messiah, you're going to defeat Rome. You're going to make us rich. You're going to make us powerful. And you're going to make us so happy. So, so, so. If these are the general expectations that everyone had about the Messiah, and they find out that Jesus is the Messiah... What are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to grab their pitchforks and say, let's get behind this guy. I mean, I want to overthrow Rome. I want to be rich. I want to be happy. I want to be powerful. I want an Aston Martin. So Jesus is going to clarify something real quick. Um, He's going to say in the next, verse 31, chapter 8. Then he began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the laws, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about all of this. What does Jesus say? I am the Messiah, and I'm not going to overthrow Rome, I'm going to be crucified. To which Peter says, No, wait a minute. Jesus, no. I said you're the Messiah. Like you're not one of those fake messiahs that gets crucified. You are the Messiah. I've seen what you can do. You can raise the dead. You can walk on water. You can calm the storm. You're a Messiah. That means you're going to be king, Jesus. No, you didn't hear me. Uh, I, I didn't say you're going to be one of those false messiahs. I said you are the Messiah. God's true Messiah. God's true Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to make us rich. He's going to make us powerful. He's going to make us happy. Jesus, don't you want that? To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Isn't Jesus supposed to be nice? (laughs) Like, I really don't know how you recover from that. When Jesus looks at you and calls you Satan, what's your next step? Really? Really? Why would Jesus be so adamant, even mean at this point? Because at this point, Peter does not care what Jesus has to say. Peter only cares what Jesus can do for him. Because at this point, Peter does not love Jesus. Peter loves what Jesus can do for him. And that is selfish. And that is godless. And he says to him, you do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. You are selfish and godless. And that is satanic. And then he calls everybody in the whole crowd. Everybody there. And he says, let me explain this, how this is going to go. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Whoever wants to overthrow Rome and become rich and powerful and happy and famous, whoever seeks those things, they're going to end up dead and miserable. But whoever gives up all those things and follows me, they're going to find life. They're going to find the good news. Huh? So he clarifies. In the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus takes the disciples off alone again. He gets away from the crowds and he says, This is what's going to happen. Let me be clear. Are you listening? The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I am headed to Jerusalem. And let's be perfectly clear about where this journey is ending. It's ending with me dead on a cross. To which they say in the very, the very next verse, verse says, they did not understand what he meant. Like, I hear you talking, Jesus, but there's just words. All I can think about is driving an Aston Martin right now. Like, I know you're talking to me, but Jesus, all I can think about is how rich we're going to be and how great it's going to be when you become king. Like, I know you're talking, but we see in the very next verse, really the real question is, Jesus, I'm so glad we started this conversation because I've really been wanting to ask you, When we get in the kingdom, which one of us is going to be the greatest? That's the question they ask. So Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't get it. In chapter 10, verse 33, he says this. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's his name for himself will be betrayed to the chief priest and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. They say, Jesus, I'm so glad you want to talk about this trip because I was just thinking, you know, my brother James and I, you know, we've been thinking about this trip the whole time. When we get to Jerusalem and you become this great king, we, we really want thrones and we really like it. If we could maybe have one on the one side and one on the other, and we're thinking something cool. Since we're called the sons of thunder, could we get like a lightning bolt on the back? Can we sit next to you in your kingdom? By the time we reach Mark chapter 11, the disciples are so fixated on what Jesus can do for me so fixated on what it means that his kingdom will do for me all the blessings I will receive when he becomes king that they don't hear a single word he says. And it really, literally goes something like this. I'm going to die a shameful death, penniless. And they ask, so what color Aston Martin should I get? And he says, I'm going to give up all my power and be slaughtered like a lamb. And they say, So do I get one of those big swivel chairs? And he says, I'm going to suffer and die naked and nailed to a tree. And they say, so do I actually get to meet Pharrell? That would make me happy. How is it possible that they could be so fixated on what Jesus could do for them that they can't hear a word he's saying? How is it possible that we could be so fixated on what Jesus can do for us that we can't hear a word that he's saying? The truth is that following Jesus means following Jesus to a cross. His call is a call to die. That on the cross, there all of our hopes and all of our dreams and all the things that we think make us important, they mean nothing. That's what it meant to follow Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that's what it means to follow Jesus today. Aren't you glad you're here today? So what's going on in their hearts here that makes it so impossibly hard for them to hear? Because maybe by, by understanding their mindset a little bit, maybe we'll understand what makes it so impossibly hard for us to hear Jesus. My guess is, is that all of this actually started innocent enough. Because, you know, if you go through those things that they expected out of a Messiah, overthrowing Rome, wealth, power, glory, happiness, if you go through all that, there's actually good biblical reason to expect the Messiah to do all that. In fact, it started with some truth here. If you go through the Scriptures, you're going to find that the stuff that these ancient Palestinians were looking for, it's in there. Like, it's in the earlier parts of the Scripture here. That there's reason to believe that He's pretty much going to do everything they said. And the truth is this. That the result of trusting in the Messiah is that He will give you all those things. He will make your life better. He will give you ultimate healing. He will fix everything in the world. That when you read about the Messiah's coming, the result is that there is going to be power and glory and wealth and titles and acceptance and recognition from God and eternal life. All of that is in the Old Testament. All of that is clearly promised. And Jesus actually reaffirms this in all of his ministry. What does he say? If I leave, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. There's mansions involved. What does he say? He says, anything you give up in this life, you're going to receive it tenfold. What's he say? He says, when you come, there's going to be crowns. You're going to be put in charge of the nations. Anyone who follows me. That in the end, Jesus will overthrow all the powers of the world. That the end result is power, glory, thrones, happiness, health. All of that is true. But when people... Disciples, the crowds, you and me. When we hear about these results of trusting in this Messiah, the temptation forms in our minds. That we take these results and we make them the reason why we follow the Messiah. Did you hear that difference? It's really small. It's an innocent difference. You're switching the results for the reason. We make the reason why we follow our Messiah is the results that it will give us. Okay, so the result of believing in Jesus is a transformed life. Is that true? It's true. Okay, so the reason for following Jesus is a transformed life. Now is that true? Is that good? Sounds innocent enough, but I want you to think about these two words, reason and result. And I'm just going to read a few phrases and tell me what you think about this. The result of saving your life is that I get a medal of honor. Is that good? Yeah, that's noble. Okay, the reason I saved your life is so that I would get a medal of honor. Like, you bum. Okay, the result of our friendship is that you're going to let me use your beach house next Memorial Day. The reason for our friendship is that you're going to let me use your beach house next Memorial Day. Mm, Same. The reason I, I, the the result of working so hard is that I get a bonus. The reason I work so hard is that I get a bonus. Same. The result of our marriage is that you make me a millionaire. The reason for our marriage is that you make me a millionaire. that's not the same thing the reality is that there are many things in life in which the reasons we do things have nothing to do with the results in fact I'm going to suggest to you that the most important things when we talk about things like marriage and parenting friendship, acts of heroism, love art, achievement, the reason we do these things has almost nothing to do with the results of those things, why do you want to marry her? Why do you want to have kids? Why do you want to express yourself in a piece of art? Why do you want to have a great achievement? The reason behind these things, truly great relationships, great achievement, acts of heroism, sacrifice, intimacy, friendship, these are not the same as the results. To get these two confused is perversion. It's the difference between marrying for love and being a prostitute. The same is true with our relationship of Jesus. The end is not to love Jesus for what he can do for you or how Jesus can make your life better. The end is to love him, period. To love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. If the reason that we believe G- believing Jesus is so that he can make our lives better, the great temptation will always be that we won't really love Jesus at all. We'll just love the stuff he can do for us. And this is exactly what we see in Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, it's Passover. And there are millions, possibly two million Jews who descend upon the city of Jerusalem, a, city, a walled city that was no bigger than, than Phoenixville. And it is full of celebrations and parties and singing and crowds. And they, these rumors start spreading. Jesus is coming. He's, he's the Messiah. He's going to be declared king. He's God's king. He's going to do all the stuff that we want him to do. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to make us rich and wealthy and happy and powerful. Jesus is coming. So what do they do? I love Jesus. Millions of people now love Jesus. They stand as he descends from Bethany into the city. And they all come out and they cheer and they cheer. Jesus, give us victory. Give us, save us. Give us victory. Hoshia, save us. na Hoshana, hosanna, hosanna. Five days later, they realize that he is not going to be the king that they want him to be. He might call himself Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that they wanted. And he's not going to do everything they dreamed of. And so their love turns to hatred. And now the crowds before Pilate, they don't cry, save us. They cry, crucify him, crucify him. And this man who entered Jerusalem to become king, he's no longer surrounded by advisors. Now he's left alone to die. Instead of being clothed like a king, he's stripped naked. Instead of becoming the most powerful man in the world, he becomes so weak he can't carry his own cross. Instead of being lifted up on a throne, he's lifted on a cross. Instead of living life to the fullest, he's nailed to a tree, writhing, cursed, disfigured. And at the foot of the cross, nobody's cheering. At the foot of the cross, he just looks like another failed messiah. At the foot of the cross, there is no power and no money and no happiness. And at the foot of the cross, we discover that this is his love for us. But we also discover if we actually love him, because at the foot of the cross, nobody comes there asking for Jesus to do something for them. The only reason to follow Jesus to the cross is that you look up and you say, I love that man and I would die for him. At the cross, every motivation except love is stripped away. And if you follow him there, if you love him enough to go to the cross with him, then you discover, though, that this is not the end. He is the Messiah, and they will kill him, but after three days, he will rise. See the cross is not the end; it's the beginning. He rose. His mission was not to die, but his mission was to die and rise again. That the reason you fo- if the reason you follow Jesus is love, then you will follow him to the cross, and there, in your sorrow and in your suffering and in your death, and when all of your dreams are gone, when we confess that he is the Messiah and he is enough and he is all my all and all, we discover that in his death. There's victory over our greatest enemies. Sin and death are gone there. That in his death that he will bring riches of forgiveness and peace, something that money can never buy. That in his death, he's going to give us power to say no to our own evil desires. Power to, to not be afraid of anything. That he's going to give us a freedom that this world can never know. That in his death, he's, we can finally be happy. Not a happiness that is based upon whether I get more stuff or I have things my way or I'm controlling everything. But a happiness that is based in knowing that God loves me. And after three days later he proved that he is God's Messiah that the world might reject him but God did not reject him and if the reason you follow Jesus is because you love him someday you will experience the results of following Jesus that he will come back and overthrow all the powers of the world that he will come back and there will be a kingdom that he will come back and there will be thrones that he will come back And there will be power and glory and happiness and shalom. So, the question we started with is the question I just want to end with Do you love Jesus or do you love the stuff that Jesus does for you? Are you willing to follow a crucified Messiah? Are you willing to go to the foot of the cross? It's a hard question, a question about our motives, a question that you can probably only answer for yourselves, and a question that is supremely important. Let's pray. Father, as we look at what Christ did for us, that he is... This glorious Messiah that we never would have made up on our own. He's completely unexpected. Lord, as we follow this story all the way through from from the false expectations and the wrong hopes that we want to put on. And all the wrong motivations and reasons for following Jesus. And the way he cuts through that with all the people, the crowds that follow him. Lord, I pray that right now Jesus would do the same thing with us. That he would cut through all of our false motivations. All of our false reasons for following him. God, I pray that you give us ears to hear. What does it mean to follow Jesus to the cross? What does it mean that Jesus is my Messiah, the King of glory? What does it mean when I'm suffering, when he doesn't fix everything, when life is hard? Do I want to follow that Messiah? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.